Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm J. Dalen Proctor. I'm Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Allegria. And we are here today in Cord Purgatory. That is the name of our studio. It has been called that by people who come to visit us. They go in there and they say, wow, that is a lot of cords. You must all be <laughs> being punished for all of your crimes and sins for being locked up in a, a cord-ridden closet for so long. Anyways, we have cleaned it up a lot since it's... Uh, True we purgatory days, it though. <laughs> it is not the purgatory that it used to be. We've moved up a layer, actually. <laughs> yep. Um, we're getting close to the top. Um, if you support us and share our content, we'll hopefully get out of purgatory. Um, <laughs> terrible. I don't take that too seriously. That was a joke. Um, anyway, so for our conversation today, we got a question that I think is worth asking because it is a very question about Christian orthodoxy. Somebody came to me and they said, preacher, which is what they call people out here in the country, the preacher... If someone dies in sin, what happens to them? It's a great question. Um, it's one that I think is a very, very healthy question for us to talk about. So I just want to present it with you all. Um, we're not going to to rat out the person who asked it. Um, snitches get stitches. We're not going to be a snitch. But conversational-wise, it is a great question for us all to answer and think about. And I know we talk about current events a lot, but let's talk about some orthodox theology. So Amanda, we'll start with you. All right, so when I first heard this question, I think there's lots of layers to the, what this person is asking. They're asking about what is sin. They're asking about what is uh, salvation or the pot- potential for repentance, and then ultimately what happens after we die. And oftentimes, if you're even f- barely familiar with Christianity, uh, you've probably heard of this concept of heaven and hell. And so the kind of knee-jerk reaction would be, okay, if they die in sin, they go to hell. And then in, in recent times, a lot of popular Christianity has been struggling with this issue. Is there even a hell? Well, what happens? Um, can a merciful and just God send people to hell? And so there's a lot to unpack kind of even in that short little question that's asking. And I think anytime I come to the concept of hell and what happens after we die, um, in my education, one of my professors, I think, said one of the, the most profound things that have really impacted how I enter this conversation is, is if we truly understand our God that has given us free will, then there has to be a hell. There has to be a place for people to exist outside of the life of God. God never forces God's self on others, even um, in the afterlife, even after we have died. Um, so as we come to this conversation, it really is important for us to realize God does not want us to be separated from God's self, from God's love, from um, life and life everlasting. That is not God's atten- intent. Um, however, again, we are creatures of free will. We get to choose. If, if we are mature adults that have grown into that ability to weigh choices, we understand the concept of prevenient grace, that is that children or those who, who do not mentally have the capacity to choose, they are covered by grace. Um, but for, for those of us who can make that choice, we are then responsible for the decisions we make. We're going back just a second, Amanda, because you mentioned earlier that God desires for us to be with him. And one of the, the very popular definitions for hell actually is not that hell is hellfire brimstone this place of eternal suffering where somehow your body doesn't go into shock which you just perpetually suffer in a tangible way but this idea that hell itself is just the absence of god mm-hmm. um, or being being outside of the the proximity of god being separated from god and i think that's actually interesting um what are your thoughts on that um i think 
I would would agree with that in a lot of a sense of also um, when we even on kind of the flip side, when we depict heaven and we say the streets are lined with gold, um, whether or not gold is literally paving the sidewalk is, you know, it, it's minuscule compared to the fact it's describing this imagery of great comfort and, and fulfillment. And, mm. you know, life is abundant here that even the dirt we walk on is precious. Um, and so then the flip side then that is when we describe hell as fire and brimstone and, and pitchforks and flames and torture, uh, whether that's literally what's happening, probably not. It, it's, there are more imagery to describe this that, um, again, God has created space um, for us to choose to be outside of that loving relationship and anything outside of perfect, holy compassionate, all-consuming love that is God is going to be miserable. Anything outside of God is going to be miserable. Um, and so then, so we have this, again, this this imagery, and we also, scripture also talks about hell was made for demons and, and um, uh, angels who had fallen and, and all those different things, and that can, that goes maybe into a different little side tangent, but the purpose, again, for this place is not that God thought one day, you know, I think the sinners, the dirty, rotten sinners need a place to be tortured as much as it is if you choose to exist outside of God's love, then there is a place for you. Yeah, um, then then, you're outside of God's love. Yeah, you're yeah. outside, and that's not a <laughs> yeah. good place to be. Yeah. And so then logically in our brains, we're like, well, then why would anyone choose that? But to live into God's holiness, to be a part of that relationship is something that calls responsibility on ourselves. Yeah. And also for us to allow God to transform us. So it becomes, uh, it's not an easy choice necessarily. If we fully comprehend what the call of the gospel, the call of the kingdom is, it's not simple and easy, but at the same time, um, it is definitely um, more life-giving than the alternative. And so I think, again, thinking of hell in that concept can be a much more appropriate way. Yeah. Earlier, um, you guys were saying that it is, that it could... Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that hell could, is kind of um, a product of free will, and is that is that kind of in line with what you were saying earlier that if, I would, if you do want to be I outside say of God's product, yeah, I wouldn't say product of either. free will, yeah. um, but it is maybe a consequence might not be the right I, word. I would but say that it's consistent with a reality mm-hmm. that has free will in it. If we're going to say that there is free will, then that is consistent with the same reality that people can choose. And again, if you're going to be making choices, the only choices that are real choices are choices of things which are fundamentally different. Like going to the um, fridge and saying, I'm choosing between Coke and Pepsi. There may be a lot of people who say these are fundamentally different, but they're kind of the same thing. Well, uh, more like, you know, if there really isn't a choice, it'd be like going to the fridge and saying, I'm choosing a Coke, but all that's in the fridge is Coke. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So that's yeah. not that's not really a choice that's happening versus, um, but no, again, it's not that, we, we then in of ourselves created hell as a product of our free will. That's not exactly what we're trying to say. But no, yeah, I didn't okay. mean it that way. That, that's, I think that product language can well, be I think, difficult. You know, but God, it, you know, in many ways, God gave us free will. Mm-hmm. God created free will. Yeah. So, well, you know, in, in creating free will. We're modeled after will, God, and God, the very essence is centered around the concept of will, so for sure. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, the, in, in creating free will, hell was also created. Because, I mean, if you can choose to be away from God in life, well, I think it seems to be a, a meritable to argue a that you choose to be away understanding from understanding of hell. And again, mm-hmm. I want us to move our conversation to sin. But while we're on hell, this final thought. Well, first off, I think at best we can all agree the language of both heaven and hell in Scripture is ambiguous at best. 
the imagery is ambiguous at best. And even things like Angel, going back to the concept of Angelon, the messenger, and even going back to some of the, the really old descriptions we have of sort of non-human beings we get in the Old Testament, it's ambiguous at best. But one of the things that is quite clearly laid out in good Orthodox theology is this imagery of light and darkness, which is a bit more abstract, but also very interesting because God being portrayed as light, very, very often we see this. Not, he's not only portrayed as light, but one of the things used to help us understand God is that God is light. We see a lot of this in the epistles of John. We've been talking about John, and we're doing a study in the epistles of John here at Jolton. John opens up with this talk again about the Logos, but also this idea of God being light. Well, the thing, interesting thing about light is, is you don't actually have darkness. Darkness isn't really a thing. It's not the same as light. You don't turn on darkness. Darkness is that which happens in the absence of light. And I think a good understanding for not just um, hell, but things which are dark, things of, of that matter, hellacious matter, are things which, in a creation consistent with free will, there are people who do not choose to do positive things. There are people who do not choose to go into the light, so they go to the things which are nihilistic. They're, they're sort of non-existent in the fact that they're not things which are quantifiably existing. And especially from the standpoint of theology, I think a good understanding of, of hell is not so much that God created this place of suffering, but God created a place of, of blessing, but people have the choice whether or not to enter in that. And so it's there as an absence of the other instead of being an intentionally created thing. Yeah, I suppose um, the language of created hell is, is bad. But, you know, like if you turn on a light, one spot's going to be dark. Mm, kind of. I guess they it's, were both It's not dark so much before. that it makes it dark. It's just the light isn't going there. Um, yeah. Moving on to the question of sin, because this is another question that really comes up from that. Um, what is sin and how does that relate to salvation? We are Nazarene, Nazarene clergy. Uh, from the standpoint of being that in the church of Nazarene, we talk a lot about sanctification. In the past, we've talked a lot about baptism and sanctification, but also, or baptism and salvation. But now for salvation and sanctification, I know a lot of big S words. Salvation and sanctification are not the same thing. You know, there's so many people who come at you for saying that. Um, in the Church of Nazarene, we treat it as a second work of grace. And yes, I know everybody, well, there's instant, instant sanctification different from perfect or Christian perfection and entire sanctification. Setting all the legalistic crazy language aside, <laughs> getting down to earth for a moment, we can say without a shadow of a doubt, there are people who accept the testimony of Christ, but they have not yet been transformed into an entirely holy being. I think, can we all agree on that? I mean, even when we look in the Gospels, we see people, the disciples, who they accept Christ's testimony, but they don't really understand exactly what this means. And one of the angles that this question struck me is if maybe somebody does believe, but they still have sin in their life to some capacity, well, what happens to them? And my thoughts immediately were God has grace on people. First and foremost, God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. If somebody has accepted Christ's testimony, I don't don't think you have anything to worry about, even if they haven't moved towards sanctification. But I'll just pitch that over to you, the the saved but not sanctified side of things. Hmm. Um, no, I, I think you've pretty well explained it. It, it is that... Um, sorry, I'm trying to get my words together. So Christ died, and, and there's this one work uh, done through the cross. And we do journey with God. And so there's kind of this... Um, like you said, there's all these phrases in the Church of Nazarene and other denominations that we have for this salvation, also known as initial, initial sanctification. Mm -hmm. But really, it is this coming to where we recognize our need 
that in of our own power or even within worldly powers, whether it be the government or systems and structures or culture, we cannot live life and live life abundantly. We cannot live it holistically. And we come to the realization that we are in need of Christ to do that. And we realize that further on in that journey, we come to a second point. So second definite work where we realize that we have to surrender our whole self to God to be transformed, not just our past sins, but um, our thoughts, our deeds, our, the way we order our life. And entirely sanctified just means entirely set apart. It's very uh, kind of simple definition for it. Um, H.A. Dunning would say sanctification is Christ-likeness, so being that transformation. But that transformation happens daily. And we are more and more and more transformed. So to your point, sorry, trying to bring it, bring it back to your question is that every day we are being perfected, but we can be more perfected each yeah. day. And so in that moment, like where let's like a completely crazy example that uses, that's been used a lot, especially kind of camp meeting preachers is what happens if you get struck by a bus tomorrow? Um, someone, you know, say someone does accept God, but there's still is things in their life that they're battling with, that they're struggling with and, and they die. What happens is, again, God's grace says you are allowing yourself to be transformed. Maybe not all the pieces are perfectly put together yet, but you have decided of your free will to participate in the life and a relationship um, with God. And so that's, that's kind of the requirement or, and that's really not good language either, but that's what it means to be saved is, is to live in right relationship with, with God. And, and maybe not everything is exactly right, but you're moving to that point. You're not being lazy. You're not being stagnant. You're not trying to resist that transformation, but you're still being transformed. You're still on that journey. Um, and so in that instance, because you're in relationship with God, you're going to live in eternity in relationship with God. I think that's great. Well, we'll wrap up this conversation there. Uh, before we move on to a, another conversation, any final thoughts? Amanda, Anthony? Um, I, I might ask, you know, like how, just for, um, to clarify stuff, how might you guys determine better when someone um, isn't in the circumference of salvation, I guess? But like, you know, for instance, they claim to believe. They claim uh, to Anthony believe. Anthony had to, to have that extra jab in there. Like, how much trouble can we get in today? Let, <laughs> no, me, no, no. let me throw something in there that makes us all unemployable for yeah. the future. The, this is this is the danger zone. But, yeah. um, you know. Oh, I'm ready and, for the danger zone. Bring it. All right. So, you know, they, they claim to believe, but then, you know, obviously they don't reflect any of that. Well, first off, we didn't come to the Internet because we weren't planning on people coming to, to come after your throat. We, <laughs> we knew what happened when you get on the Internet. To answer your question, I think... And again, I don't think that no if test or standard is necessarily the best language, but the question is, when you've been presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, how did you react to that? Did you reject it? Are you somebody who lives a life consistent with saying that bad is good and good is bad? Um, and I don't just mean good in the abstract, secular way. I mean good as being the things which come out of the nature of God. Do you say the nature of God is good? Do you say that the nihilistic void outside of the nature of God is good? evil or do you say that's good you know where do you stack up against holiness that's the question how did you react if you reacted positively and, and when i say positively i mean you accept it you affirmed the gospel and you said i am accepting this in my life then yes you are within the confines of god's salvation and that's the place where i draw the line mm -hmm. i realize that sometimes people do not pull or pursue um, sanctification they do not pull holiness down to their life um, which I guess maybe I should say elevate up to, not pull down. But um, 
I think God still has grace for them, and I know it's the the sanctified um, preacher and uh, the sanctification oriented preacher who talks a lot about sanctified and things of that nature. I want people to move that direction, but at the same time, I realize that not everybody does, and it's not my job to judge them. So God has grace on people, mm-hmm. and when people have received the gospel message, God God certainly steps in there with grace. Yeah, and and I think again, you know, talking about a couple episodes ago, we talked about what if we had to do Charles Manson's uh, funeral or anyone of, of that kind of nature, someone of, of great evil. And uh, though we are called to be people who judge, we judge using God's rubric, not our own. Yep. Um, and but ultimately, we leave the ultimate decision to God. Yep. And we as ministers of the gospel are called to call people to holiness. And so when we see things in people's lives to say, hey, this this is interrupting your relationship with God, interrupting your relationship with other people, with nature, within yourself, this is harmful. And God has called you to live a life and live it abundantly. I know I've said that a hundred times, but that, that is that's the gospel, right? Christ has come that you may have life and have it to its fullest. And so when we see those things, we, we direct people. And again, as, as Pastor Dylan said, then what is their response? Are they continually fighting that call to live a transformed life? Or are they living into it, but they're still struggling, but they're still they're still living into it, but they're still struggling. And we have to give them people that opportunity. Um, and again, we, we give, we do our part. We live a holy life. We call other people. We encourage other people to live holy lives. Ultimately, it is their decision. Um, and, and God is, is judge. Um, so we give that to him. Um, but that doesn't mean we get to slack off either as yeah. people um, of the kingdom. So, Very good. I'll leave it there. Okay, so today on Hot Not or Sanctified, we are going to be looking at the artwork depicting John. So we're going to watch a little video that explains some of that more in depth, and then we're going to come back and talk about the artwork and also some of the conspiracy theories behind it. Uh, So enjoy. Let's explore the symbolism associated with John the Evangelist in art. Eagles, pinkish red robes, body language, and other symbols distinguish John the Evangelist, and it is worth our time to explore this topic. John the Evangelist, also known as John the Apostle, has very interesting symbolism associated with him in art. For the purposes of this content, we are going to consider John the Evangelist, John the Apostle, and John of Patmos all to be the same person. We will cover the different variations of the name towards the end. However, we should remind ourselves that this is a different person than John the Baptist. This particular John is known for writing the Johannine literature in the New Testament, which consists of the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, and Revelation, which is also known as the Apocalypse. Depictions of John the Evangelist are very common in Renaissance art. This is because John was present at the crucifixion scene, and depictions of the crucifixion scene are very popular for obvious reasons. John's presence at the crucifixion makes him a popular figure in art, but it also means that he needs particular symbols to distinguish him from other figures. John is depicted as either a young beautiful man or as an old man with a beard. Occasionally you can spot a thin, faint halo just over his head. John is almost always wearing red or pink, or some variation between the two. The color can change from a very distinct red to a very light pink, although sometimes the red or pink garment is only part of the wardrobe. John is generally depicted with a book or some material to write with. 
This points to his writings in the New Testament. Also, John is generally depicted by an eagle. Each of the four Gospels and their respective writers have particular symbols associated with them, but John and his Gospel are depicted by an eagle. The eagle represents the soaring heights that John's material reaches. John tends to be more abstract and philosophical in his writings, and the eagle represents this. It is quite common for John to be placed on the Isle of Patmos, with boats and architecture in the background. Also, one can see the mysterious beings and images from the book of Revelation with John. Much of the art representing John has many layers of symbolism. John's body language is also quite noteworthy. When he appears in the crucifixion scene, he tends to be positioned somewhere near the foot of the cross. When John is placed in other locations than the crucifixion scene, he tends to be looking upwards as if he is receiving divine inspiration. On occasion, we can also find John with a chalice and snake. This comes from the legend that John was being poisoned for his faith. Poison was a formal method of execution. However, John blessed the poison and it turned into a snake and slithered away. Thus, we see the chalice and snake in art representing John. Let's move on to talk about the different names for John as these shape the art depicting him. John is sometimes referred to as John the Evangelist because he is a gospel writer, particularly the Gospel of John. The term gospel means good news, and the Greek word associated with this concept is euangelion, which has the Greek prefix eu, meaning good, followed by the root angelon, which is associated with the concept of a messenger. Of course, angelon is the source for our English word, angel. An evangelist is someone who shares good news. John is also referred to as John the Apostle. This is because he was one of the original twelve. Certainly, there were many more disciples of Jesus than the twelve apostles, but the apostolic language reminds us that John was one of the twelve. John is also referred to as John of Patmos. This is because he spent time on the Isle of Patmos when he experienced and recorded the revelation found in the end of the New Testament. In conclusion, things to look for when examining John the Evangelist are a young beautiful man or an old bearded man. Either way, he will be wearing pinkish red. He will probably have an eagle nearby and some books or paper, and he will probably be looking up at the heavens to receive inspiration. It is possible he will be on the Isle of Patmos with a few mysterious beings, or even at the foot of the cross. Well, that was a lot of fun to understand a little bit more about the artwork behind John the Evangelist. And I would like to point out that the artwork behind John the Evangelist is a different conversation than whether or not John the Evangelist is all three of those people, though a lot of times the artwork consolidates them for sure. Well, anyways, let's ask the question, hot, not, or sanctified? And then we'll get into some of the conspiracies around John. So let's just go right into it. Amanda, what do you think? All right, so for the artwork, I think uh, there's lots of things going on. And like you said, we're going to talk about some conspiracy theories behind that. So there's, there's a big conversation with this. But overall and arching, if I were to give it one answer, I would say hot. And that is because... Um, with any artwork, it opens up the ability to tell a story. And we really do see these characteristics um, depicted within John of, of the person who, who follows Christ and later is exiled and, and has to just shares this great history of being the evangelist, of sharing the gospel. Um, so for all of those kind of threads that weave in throughout this art, I think it's definitely hot. Anthony, what do you think? Okay, for the sake of um, stirring the pot... I would say, and not on my own belief, but for the sake of stirring the pot, not and because... All right, know, just to clarify, you're going to be like not and to give every possible reason that one could say not, yes? Yeah, I'm going to do my best. Okay, well, that's <laughs> that's fine. Let's let's get into it. Okay, so first reason not um, obviously would be the 
the iconography argument or the iconoclastic argument, which, you know, is that we shouldn't be representing any of these things in something that could be idolized. So, you know, obviously, um, John's normally presented as a beautiful young man, and that's not necessarily always positive. So, and I'd like I'm, to point out that that, even though I was the one who narrated that video, that is not my own description of John. <laughs> though sometimes you look at him and you may not realize that he's a man. Um, that is generally how people describe him. Like he's somebody who's supposed to be not just handsome to look at, but a lot of times he does have features that you would associate with a young woman. Um, hmm. Just bizarre in and of itself. All right. So, you know... Um, the iconoclastic argument for one, sure. And then there's also the eagle, which is also which is closely related to pagan mythos. Um, and it, it is a sexual one, possibly, as well. So all, all that considered, um, associate, association with pagan mythos isn't positive. So not for that. And... Um, I think that's about it for now, but no, those on. are my two Julie can come up not. with a few more. Well, one of the things that, if I were going to say not, which I guess coming around um, the studio here, Cord Purgatory, I would definitely say hot. I think John is a great inspiration. I like the art. I like that it is something which is quite cryptic, but also very openly there. It's not something where you have to have like a cipher to figure out what's going on. You can actually look at it and see a lot of these symbols hidden quite in plain sight. They're hidden right before you. But at the same time... There are questions you could have like, all right, so if John actually lives to be in his 90s, close to 100, why is he depicted as a young man when he's on Patmos? I mean, that's a legitimate question. If he is three separate people, because there are many who would argue, well, we think there's one writer for John. They're the Gospel of John. We think that that may have been the same person who wrote the epistles, but the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that's different. You could say, okay, if those are three separate people, then why are they consolidated in the art? Because in the artwork, you really do see imagery of someone. Again, you get the eagle for the gospel. You get the writings there to represent not just somebody who's an important figure, but he's actually an author in the New Testament. That's why the book's there. And then you also see him placed on Patmos, which really wraps up all of those three characters into one. So there's a question of that. If it's three different people, why is it painted or sculpted as one? There's a question there. So I think there's a lot of interesting things with that. Amanda, do you have anything to say on any of those reasons to say not? Well, um, <laughs> I, I don't think I can conceive of another not, but just as almost a rebuttal for all that is, even though it's very important for us to understand our history and understand how these legends of our um, the apostles have grown, um, we were talking about earlier, it seems like almost every apostle has at least two martyrdom stories that go along with them. And so it's important for us to try to dig and find truth and, and evidence and all those kinds of good things. But ultimately, the story of John, whether it's three people, two people, one person, a hundred people, uh, the story remains, the gospel truth remains um, still pertinent and reliable. Yeah. Um, so throughout all these things, that's, it, it, it's, again, it's good to have these conversations, but uh, for the artwork to, to have this common thread throughout it, I think it's something to be more the focus than, yeah, it does seem odd. Why is uh, the uh, the apocalyptic writer on Patmos looking like he's 20 when that was probably written closer to 90 AD? Uh, so he definitely yeah. wouldn't be 20 um, unless it was a second or third or ninth person. Um, so th there is some inconsistencies, but the focus of the art wasn't so much to relay a 
uh, truthful depiction of what John the apocalyptic writer would look like in 90 AD, but so much the truth of the story. Yeah. Um, so there's there's multiple layers going on, like you said. So I think, again, we have to keep those things considered, but ultimately um, it's a good theological inspiration. Well, that, you actually brought up something. A lot of the, the early Christian do have multiple accounts for their martyrdom. I mean, you find this not only with the very popular people that we find in the New Testament, but even with a lot of the obscure people. I know in the past we actually looked at a particular martyrdom where we had a written account from the lady who was martyred, Vivia Perpetua. But even if you look at the accounts outside of hers, because obviously you, you die, so you're not able to write after you, you had that. <laughs> but the accounts of how that actually took place is wildly different. Even for somebody who themselves were recording it up to the moment right beforehand, it's still a lot of ambiguity afterwards. But going back to, to the idea of multiple deaths, it it I don't say it bothers me, but it struck me as odd that we so often see John with the, the chalice and the snake. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't familiar with that until doing the studying for this. But we I've heard the story of him being boiled alive. This is why he goes to Patmos, is because he's boiled and he doesn't die, and they send him to Patmos. I think it's interesting that the, the boiling is not incorporated in the art. But I guess that doesn't look for so good. That would probably look more like an image of witchcraft, somebody <laughs> right. boiling. But um, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, because the child is definitely smaller in the painting, so you could you could fit that into more more that's things. True. Yeah, all of them would probably look the same if he were to be boiled. You'd have him on Patmos writing scripture in a boiling <laughs> um, thing of oil. Add Just a new new layer. New to layer that. to it, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, one last thing. Let's th talk about some of the conspiracies around him, because I think we can definitely agree to not on some of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So yeah. obviously there's the conspiracies that there's multiple Johns. There may be credibility to that. I don't know. I don't think we're going to be decide that. Here. Right. Well, we can't. Um, there, there's really no good way to it. And like I said, we can research. We can have extra biblical um, resources. We can look inside of scripture and we can kind of debate it. And then this has been a debate for biblical scholars for years now. Yeah. Um, and sure. they each of them can say, here's the list of why and here's the list of reasons of why not. But yeah, th th we're not going to definitely know um, unless the TARDIS is real um, and we can hop on. Um, you know, and, and go back in time and see that. But, um, or we'll know in heaven, we can talk to Which, John. On the Doctor Who reference, you know, the when they originally were presenting the concept of Doctor Who, they were actually wanting to go to the, the crucifixion, if I'm not mistaken. That was one of the things they wanted to see. See, They were, were going to have a lot of religious overtones in it, and then the BBC said, no, we want to go in a different direction. direction. Oh, that would have been pretty cool. It would be. But... That being said, it would have also probably caused a lot of headache because people would be like, did they represent it right. accurately? Like, yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing that everyone gets mad about. Like, yeah. No the one Christians needs to are touch mad that about one. it. The people who are not Christian, the atheists, they hate it. I mean, everybody just gets all tore up about it. Yeah, it's good. Well, back, back to John. Um, one of the things that I think adds credibility that John actually is the apostle, how much he writes, I don't know. But in a lot of the early documents, they actually use the language, the apostolic language to describe him as opposed to language that they have for people who are bishops. The concept of being a leader in the church of that level of authority did exist. So that seems a bit odd to me that if he's not an apostle, why is the apostolic language there? But for time purposes, we've got to move on to this last conspiracy, and I think it's one that we can all be entertained by, although it's definitely <laughs> something we would – I'm going to say not to it. If Amanda or Anthony want to say hot to it, fine. But there's a conspiracy that in the book of John, there's this wedding at Canaan that happens in chapter 2. One of the conspiracies is that Mary Magdalene is the bride in that, and he is the groom. And, of course, Mary Magdalene, the patron saint of conspiracy series, <laughs> which is both true and a bit of a joke um, – 
Anyways. The irony is strong in that one, yeah. The irony is strong in that one. But back to, to John. There's this idea that both of them, they feel the call of Christ at the wedding. People debate whether or not they go through with the wedding, but they certainly don't live standard married life, and I'll leave that there. And But there's this idea that they are the ones getting married. They don't live the normal married life, but later in Ephesus, they join back together for missionary work. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. I cannot verify. There's more evidence for that than there is that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus. But again, that's not saying much because there's not a lot of evidence for it at all. I definitely say not to that conspiracy theory. I don't buy into it, but it is an interesting piece of conspiratorial work. So I don't know. What do y'all think about that? We'll wrap up. Well, and I I think that's a lot of things like our gospels. We we have the four gospels and they do differ in certain accounts with the details and different things that are happening. And so there, there can be this, um, for well, all of humanity, we try to fill in the gaps, right? So we're we're trying to fill in the gaps because we can't just have two obscure characters that um, experience Christ's first miracle. We have to like give them names and titles and a backstory um, and their own solo film and all these different things. And so it does seem a little bit like we're trying to retroactively get the story to fit a little bit better. Yeah. Um, it could happen. It could have happened. I would go with most likely not. Um, but. Um, it, it also leaves some interesting ideas of what do we do with married couples in ministry? And when did this myth come about? Um, was it something like, could they not be married and live as a married couple because of, at that time, ministers could not be married? Um, so there, there's a lot going in there of when the story maybe came about and the influences both of the, the time within the story and all the, so the time outside of what was developing the story. Um, but yeah, that, that one we got to be very cautious on. Oh, for sure. However... I do want to build off that. You mentioned how it's answering for a mystery. Somebody the other day said that all all heresies, and they made a sweeping statement. I know. Uh, only a Sith deals in absolutes, <laughs> which is an absolute statement. Whatever. They said that all heresies are people answering for mysteries in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I don't think it's actually answering for or explaining the mysteries in the gospel. Because a lot of people who are heretics, they usually keep the knowledge to themselves. They're mm-hmm. some sort of Gnostic. I've got the secret knowledge. But at least... Um, heresies at their heart are, are tampering into the realm of the mystery and trying to, to do something in the mystical areas of theology. And I think you're exactly right. People have, there's mystery around this wedding, there's mystery around John and Mary Magdalene, and people just crave to, to put people together as, as romances. I don't know why this is something we always enjoy doing. People mm-hmm. do. But anyways, they look at these two people, they're like, they were young people together, and now they're back in Ephesus together later in life. Well, A leads to B. This is what we've got. Anthony, what do you think? Um, I would say hot, but, you know, honestly, functionally, shouldn't really matter too much. I mean, they were separated for some given very huge amount of time. So, like, even if they were married, I mean, good heavens, how much more for Christ could a couple be um, Uh, living for? You know, I mean, completely different paths in ministry for Christ, not for themselves or to avoid each other, I hope, or anything bad marital issues, (laughs) but, you know, to... To go and spread the gospel, yeah. not in regards to their own marriage. So, I mean, if they were married, okay, they get back together whenever they're, whenever they're aging out, big deal. You know what well, I mean? Because functionally, they I want to throw well. this in there. We're members of the Church of the Nazarene. We're okay with people being married mm-hmm. in ministry. Uh, yeah. People may look at this and be like, oh, that one's wearing a clergy collar. They don't think ministers can be married. Amanda's married. I'm not married. Anthony's not married. Um, but... That being said, I think it's perfectly fine for married people to be in ministry. I don't know where the church got this weird thing that we don't want our, our brightest and, and people spreading the gospel to, to breed and have children. Um, that's sort of a weird thing. I know that's crazy to throw that out there, but it's like 
Come on, we need to to be working on that. Anyways, back to Mary Magdalene and John. Why is I don't I don't think the scandal is in that they're married. I think the scandal is that it's just like it's a hidden secret, yeah. if it were. But again, I think it's a goofy hidden secret to be there. That's why I don't buy it. It's mm-hmm. it's it's so ridiculous. I don't buy it. But at the same time, someone needed to yeah sell a sequel to the Da Vinci Code. Yes, someone did need to sell a sequel to the Da Vinci Code. The well, I mean, if there if there was like if he was married to someone who wasn't Mary Magdalene, yeah. just completely excluded from the life of Christ, at least while he was living, and then you know converted later on, and then John meets her and he they get married. Yeah, no one would care at all. Like you know, like it no. just happened. No, it's funny. It is what it is. All right. Well, thank you for watching. Please, please, please. If you enjoy our podcast, if you enjoy our videos, the best thing you can do to help us out is to grab a link and share our content. That will do so much to help us out. And we're going to wrap up our conversation on John. But if you also want to help us out, you can click the follow button on Facebook. You can click the subscribe button on YouTube. And if you want to help us out monetarily, we are setting up a Patreon. We actually already have it set up. You can find it at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. That's going to help us buy some new equipment. The number one thing we're looking for now is to get some new XLR microphones so that we can use these blue Yetis for other purposes. We're looking to just really enhance our production and offer you free content, even though if you would like to give, you can. But for those who want to watch, they can for free. Give you good content centered around Christianity and critical thinking. On that, have a blessed day.